Luke chapter 22 is where we left off last week, about halfway through the chapter. It's a long chapter, but I, you can't rush through a chapter like this, that's for sure. <clears throat> In the first half of this chapter, <clears throat> we saw the upper room and the institution of communion. And, um, you know, Jesus would sing a hymn according to Mark 14, 26, and uh, lead them in the Lord's Supper. Uh, and then after the Lord's Supper and the, you know, Judas uh, being revealed as the one who would betray them, uh, betray Jesus, um, and Peter being told what was gonna happen that very evening, you know, but not really understanding. They then leave that upper room and go uh, from Jerusalem uh, across the Kidron Valley uh, to the Mount of Olives. Um, and um, one of the things that I always like to remind us, you know, as we did on Sunday, is the symbology in the Bible and, and making correlations and connections. I find it really fascinating, all the examples. You know, we have, you know, uh, especially when it comes to the cross of Jesus. You know, we have Abraham there in Genesis 22, 8, where Abraham, you know, said, my God, son, you know, he said, my God will provide himself a lamb there on the sacrificial altar that was there on Mount Moriah, the very same mountain. Uh, where Jesus would be crucified uh, only thousands of years later. What, is that a coincidence it was the same place? No, it was a Godowince. Um, you know, the wilderness wandering, we saw the snake on the brass pole, if you remember, and you know, Moses made that serpent of brass there in Numbers 21, and anybody that looked on it lived. But everybody else was bitten by these little serpents, these snakes, and they were dying. Um, but if they looked to the snake on the pole, they'd live. And then John 3, 14 and 15, you know, Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too the son of man must be lifted up um, that whoever believes on him should not perish, but have eternal life. Uh, what a powerful symbol. This, the, well, how could Jesus be a, pictured as a snake on a pole? That's easy. Jesus, he who knew no sin, what? Became sin for you and for me. He was willingly... Uh, taking on all the sin of humanity, dying on the tree. <clears throat> you know, and we can go on and on. Exodus 17, 6, you know, the rock that water came out, that rock, according to 1 Corinthians 10, 4, was Christ. So you might kind of keep your antenna up for some symbols <clears throat> tonight, because we might, if we have time, remind you of a few of those. Tonight, we're going to see six symbols that you might be aware of. I'll just give you kind of a quick heads up. You'll see a garden, a cup, uh, a kiss, a sword, a rooster, and a throne. There's, those, there's some stuff you can think about as we're going through uh, this little second half of a chapter. Um, but the first symbol uh, that we'll start with here is in Luke 22. We left off uh, and we need to start here in verse 39. And we're gonna start uh, talking about um, this first symbol, um, the garden itself. It says in Luke 22, verse 39, and he came out and went as he wont to the Mount of Olives and his disciples also followed him. <clears throat> the first thing that we have here that we should know about is you know, um, this, this garden of Gethsemane. We're gonna call this symbol number one, the lonely garden. You know, Jesus goes from the multitudes out in the, you know, speaking in the Temple Mount and talking to all the people, you know, the questions they were firing at him last week, we saw that. But now they're out in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, and with four accounts in the gospel story, we have a very thorough description of what happened in the garden. They would make their way from the city 
uh, over the Kidron Valley. Um, and, and the Kidron Valley, you know, this is a place I've taken a lot of you. Many of you have been there. If you've been to Israel, you probably went to the Kidron Valley. Um, here's some pictures, you know, we, we take. Uh, this, this is the Kidron Valley. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of, there's, there's parts of it that are sort of peaceful if you get the right angle. Um, but um, if you could imagine this, you know, on the left of this picture is the Mount of Olives. On the right is the Temple Mount. And that's the wall sort of holding in the dirt that raises up the Temple Mount and what have you. Um, but, you know, Josephus had a lot to write about the Temple Mount during the first century, during Jesus's time. Josephus was an ancient historian. Um, you know, he, he, um, he talked about in his writings how Nero, uh, you know, would take a consensus of the Jews and try to figure out how many Jews were there uh, at Passover. And they had a hard time figuring out how to count how many Jews came. Apparently it was a lot. So Nero said, how are we gonna do this? Well, one of the Romans had an idea, according to Josephus, to count the number of lambs that were sacrificed on Passover. That was easier to count that, I guess. Um, and they could count then how many men. Um, the actual quote from Josephus, The Wars of the Jews by Josephus, book six, chapter nine, section three, for you that are into the works of Josephus. It's a volumes of sets of stuff. But um, he said this, and I quote, um, they found the number of sacrifices in Jerusalem at Passover circa 4 BC um, was 256,500 uh, lambs, 256,500 lambs, which upon advance of no more than 10, at least feasting together, amounts to 2,700,200 persons that were pure and holy was the 256,000 lambs. He wrote at the end of the afternoon, the blood would, from the sacrifice would splash against the sacrificial altar, reach the ankles of the priests, and the Kidron Brook, where the temple drains emptied out, it became a river of blood. And he wrote about that on Passover because of the 256,000 lambs uh, slaughtered on Passover. Um, so there's a couple things you have to understand. This is, this is Josephus writing what it was like right now. They're near, they're, this is the Passover. Jesus is there when all this activity is going on. So now they're getting out of Jerusalem. They went down this hill, the Kidron Valley from the city there. They probably went out the Southern Steps, which is on the other side of that wall, uh, but then came up the Kidron Valley. Now the Kidron, by the way, interesting word. It means dark, dusky, or murky. Why would they call the Kidron, you know, creek or river um, dusky or murky? Some say because of the sacrifice on the temple. Uh, the blood that flowed that Josephus wrote about made the water murky uh, from the blood of the lambs. Kind of interesting. Um, some scholars suggest it was named because of that. Um, by the way, this is from the early 1900s. This is the same valley, the Kidron Valley. Uh, it, it's It's pretty barren, pretty desolate. Um, but uh, since then, there's been a restoration project to make it you know, more beautiful. And so it's not quite as bad as this. In fact, here's some pictures I took with my iPhone, um, you know, looking from the bottom of the Kidron Valley up to the Eastern Gate, which is on that same wall that we were just looking at. Now, if you look the other way, if, where I'm standing, uh, if, if you stand more at the um, 
uh, where the Eastern gate is. You see that gate in that picture? If you go stand there and look the other way, you're looking at the Mount of Olives. And here's a picture of the Mount of Olives right there, if you're looking from the East Gate. Now, um, this is uh, kind of fun. When I take you guys, how many of you guys have been there to the Mount of Olives? Raise your hands. Okay, so that's quite a few. That's great. Well, if you were with me and probably with other groups, you started way up on the right side of this picture. That's where the buses drop you off. And then you make this walk down the Palm Sunday Road, and then you go to the place called Gethsemane, which is down toward the bottom of that, uh, that, that hill. And, uh, and around that uh, little uh, area, there's the Church of the Nations and stuff. That's, you know, people wonder what all those, what's the Russians doing there and all that, but it's a whole other thing, all these uh, churches and stuff they build there. But there still is the Garden of Gethsemane uh, full of olive trees. Uh, and it's quite an amazing place. Um, you know, um, this is uh, us, you know, our Ethy Creek crew walking down the Palm Sunday Road into what is the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, and we do some worship there and, and take communion. It's really quite a place to see the olive trees. Some of the olive trees are a thousand years old there in that uh, location. Um, but, you know, th this place, Gethsemane, this is where Jesus, it says he, in our text that he wanted to go there as he was wont to do. Uh, in other words, he did this often. He'd go out of the city and go to the Mount of Olives. And it seems like he liked this place, Gethsemane. It was just a garden, really an olive garden, olive trees. Uh, and it didn't have breadsticks and uh, soup and discana. Um, but it is an olive garden uh, there. Um, but <laughs> now everybody's hungry. Um, but all that to say, um, you know, uh, this garden, we're in a garden. Well, I told you the lonely garden is kind of a symbol. Well, what's this, what's this garden a symbol of? Uh, you know, that's the question. Well, in the Bible, there's actually several gardens that are worth talking about. Um, and, um, and, you know, it, it might go all the way back to, not that this is the same place, but the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden. What does the Garden of Eden have to do with the Garden of Gethsemane? Um, well, if you kind of are careful and you read your Bible, um, one of the things you'll, you'll start to realize is, you know, this lonely garden might just be reminding us of the, the Garden of Eden. You know, there in Gen Genesis 3, 4, uh, you know, the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. But that's where the process of death began. When man sinned, ate into the fruit of the knowledge of tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the, the, the Garden of Eden was where it all, you know, I, I like to remind people that's where Adam dropped the Adam bomb. He bombed out in sin, and it was a mess for all of us. Okay, Brett, you're just trying to search the narrative, uh, you know, and, and find something in the Bible. It's like a garden. Um, but I'm not the first one to make this correlation. I believe it was Paul the Apostle who uh, connects some of the dots for us. Other symbols of gardens, by the way, is Song of Solomon has an amazing garden description uh, about Jesus's love for us. Um, the book of Revelation has a garden, the final garden that we can talk about. But um, let me just remind you what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 through 23. He said, for since by man came death, Adam, by man also came the resurrection of the dead, Jesus. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. He goes on later on in that same chapter and he says this, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam, that's Jesus, was made a quickening spirit. Now the quickening means made alive or once dead, made alive. Um, Howbeit, 
that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, uh, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Uh, by the way, so, so the first Adam and the last Adam. The first Adam's Adam from Adam and Eve. The last Adam Paul's referring to is Jesus Christ. He's called the last Adam. That's one of his names. That's one of his titles given in the Bible. Um, this is another passage of many, but you know how many people out there, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. The Bible never says he was God. Well, that's so wrong and heretical, by the way. Uh, those are fighting words. Like you, it's an essential doctrine of the Christian faith that God became a man. And a lot of people try to deny that today, by the way. Don't, don't fall for that one. This is one of the many places the Bible says, you know, the first man was earth, that's, that's Adam. But the second, Jesus, the man is the Lord from heaven. This, this should stop all the mouths of people to say, well, was he 100% man or was he 100% God? And the answer to that is, Yes, both. How could he be both? Because he's God. He can do whatever he wants. There's nothing that limits him. We can believe in a God who becomes a man. 100% God, but 100% man. I don't have a problem with that. Um, so God becomes a man, uh, Emmanuel, God with us. He was tempted in all points like as we were tempted, Hebrews 4.15 says, and, um, and, then, and then suffered on the cross even though he knew no sin, he became sin, suffered on the cross, died for the sins of the man, um, you know, from Adam to you and I. So we have here, you know, um, this lonely garden, but I, I think it, it echoes back to the place where death was instituted by Adam and Eve. Now this garden is, the, is where life is about to be instituted. It's the beginning of the work. The suffering begins in the garden of Gethsemane. Um, you should note that. When did Jesus start to suffer? Um, some people might say, well, soon that first nail or went in. Well, no, it'd be at least the whipping on his back or the punching in his face like we read in the previous gospels. Uh, you know, um, the plucking out of the beard. What was the first thing? I would argue his first suffering was there in the garden of Gethsemane. Um, and it had to do with this cup that he was about to deal with and understanding what it meant. Um, the, that's why you'll see, uh, you know, some of your Bible titles call it agony in the garden, Christ's agony in the garden, because it, this is where agony started to take place. And this is where his suffering would begin. So we have number one, a lonely garden. Number two in this chapter now, we have a costly cup. Let's take a look here in verse 40. It says, and when he was at the place, he said to them, pray that you enter not into temptation. Um, have you ever noticed that we often pray for stuff we want? But have you ever thought of praying for stuff that you don't want? Um, that's what Jesus tells these guys, uh, you know, uh, pray, pray that you don't enter into temptation. Uh, that's something to think about, maybe adjusting our prayers. This is a Christ, uh, you know, uh, uh, inspired uh, way to pray, praying that you don't enter into temptation. Verse 41, and he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat as it, uh, was as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. 
And when he arose up from the prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow and said unto them, why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Um, so he, he's preparing with prayer, and that's something for us to remember. Whenever you're going through difficult times, prayer is always the best way to prepare. Prepare by prayer. Uh, and that's something you and I can do. Jesus is doing that, and he's telling the disciples to do that right here. But what's this costly cup that Jesus is talking about? You know, Father, verse 42, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. This is none other than the cup of wrath that God is gonna put out upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world. And by the way, that cup of wrath is reserved to the end for the tribulation period. However, because the Lord would that none should perish and he loves us so much, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why? So that we would not have to have that punishment of sin, the, the cup of wrath, if you would, poured out upon us. So with this cup of suffering, the cup of wrath is really, I believe, what Jesus is talking about. Um, uh, Matthew um, 26, Jesus prays the same prayer three times, if you recall that, in Matthew's account. So this cup of suffering is kind of a big deal. He prays about it three times. Um, what is the cup? It's the cup of wrath. Let me give you a few uh, references that might be helpful for you. You can jot them down. Uh, because this, this cup of wrath is something talked about all throughout, really, the, the Old Testament. In Psalm 73.10, the psalmist talks about a cup that's full. It's going to be wrung out in wrath over the people of the world. In Psalm 75, uh, verse 8, um, it says, For in the hand of the Lord there's a cup, and the wine is red. The implication is blood. Um, he'll pour out the same, but the dregs thereof, and the wicked of the earth shall wring them out and drink them. Um, the idea is it's, it's, a, it's not something you want to drink, but because of the evil humanity, they're going to drink the cup of wrath. Um, Isaiah 51, 17. Uh, the, the prophet Isaiah says, Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which has drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. <laughs> that sounds uh, not so, like such a good cup to be drinking from, the cup of God's fury. That's Isaiah the prophet. And even uh, Jeremiah jumps into the ring on this cup of wrath notion in uh, 25, 15 through 28. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel unto me, take the wine cup of his fury at my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send thee to drink it. Uh, this, this fits with all the other times of wrath and judgment that we've talked about. Remember we were talking about Daniel, you know, the stone that would come and crush the nations of the world. Uh, that's all part of the same narrative, but the wrath is gonna be poured out like a cup upon the world. But Jesus didn't deserve to drink the cup of wrath. He was innocent, perfect. So he was facing something that I think you and I probably have no idea really what he's talking about. I, I think we understand generally, well, the wrath of God and this should have been on us. And he was replacing, you know, uh, he was, uh, you know, the propitiation is the fancy doctoral, doctrinal word. That means he was the satisfaction of that requirement for us to drink the wrath that was against us but Christ substitutionarily put himself there. And that was really the only way. We know that because Jesus said, if it be possible, let there be another way, which sort of uh, makes us realize this must be way worse than anything we can imagine. Because he wasn't saying anything about that being scourged by a flagellum. He didn't even say that about being nailed to the cross, really. I think he was talking about more spiritually what was going on, the cup of wrath 
that would be uh, the one that Jesus would pay the price for us. That's why we call this the costly cup. Um, we know um, that uh, from the other gospels in this story, Jesus took three of his disciples in this section of the garden. Um, and it's kind of interesting, you know, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. They were the inner circle of disciples. We have three occasions where Jesus uh, pulled these three guys aside in the Bible. Uh, the healing of Jairus' daughter, Luke chapter eight, verses 40 through 56. Um, also the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew um, you know, 18 and Mark 9, uh, Luke 9, uh, the, when Jesus took to a very high mountain apart and, uh, you know, was transfigured. Peter, James, and John got to be there for this, but also in the Gethsemane uh, garden. Now it's G. Campbell Morgan, if you know who that is, uh, you know, a couple generations back, an amazing pastor preacher. Um, but he said each time the three were pulled aside, it had something to do with death, which is kind of interesting. Peter, James, and John, uh, when, whenever they were dealing with death situations, the, the Jairus' daughter demonstrated victory over death. The Mount of Transfiguration would be glorification through death, seeing Moses and Elijah and his death and his resurrection, um, seeing his glory and his kingdom there at the Mount of Transfiguration. So that'd be glorification through death. And then Gethsemane would talk about more the, the surrendering to death. Um, so... Why Peter, James, and John? I'm not sure. Why were these guys brought into these three situations where there's victory over death, uh, you know, uh, glorification in death, and then surrendering to death? Maybe it's because James was the first one who would be killed, according to Acts 12, verses 1 and 2. James would be the first apostle killed. Maybe it's because Peter would be the second to die, crucified on a cross upside down. Um, John would be the last to die, but he would be exiled on Patmos. They tried to boil him in oil to kill John, but he would face all kinds of peril and trouble. Um, was Jesus allowing them to be part of this Gethsemane experience? Because he knew those guys would have to deal with those kinds of things themselves um, uh, and just showing them how to prepare. He's teaching these guys how to be ready for when their cup would come, uh, their time. And they would, they would face brutal times, all three of these guys. Well, uh, salvation worked because Jesus took of that cup of wrath. If he didn't take the cup, we'd be doomed. So um, when he said, not my will, but thy will be done, we should be really glad um, that Jesus was willing. One, one last thing. Did Jesus sweat great drops of blood? Mixed opinions here. I like that. That's good. Uh, why is that good? Well, um, you know, I used to believe this and I'd heard sermons on the great drops of blood and since I was a little kid and, and, um, and there's even a condition, by the way, uh, called hematrodosis, that if somebody uh, has a certain condition uh, that's brought on by extreme agony uh, and anguish where you can actually bleed through your pores, there's actually a thing that happens like that. So I've always thought, well, that's just it. But, but um, I was at a men's breakfast years ago and uh, just kind of, to talk with some guys and this really great old guy, he was an old pastor, uh, really liked the guy, Dennis. And uh, he, he would just sit there kind of quietly listening. Um, but once in a while, he'd throw something out, just kind of, you know, a bee for the bonnet, you know what I mean? Uh, and it was always great, you know, and Dennis said, are you guys sure Jesus really sweat great drops of blood? I think not. And he kind of like threw a grenade in the middle of our men's breakfast. Like, of course, of course he sweat. But then we all kind of looked at it more closely. This is the one story in the four gospels that it actually talks about that here in John. 
And it uses uh, it more, if you look at it, it, and you have to go, even if you look in the original language, but not only is it in the original Greek, but it's also here, it's more of a, a simile, uh, if you know what that is, where it says, um, he sweat as it were. The idea, that's the King James way of saying, he sweat just as if it was like great drops of blood. Um, not that it was great drops of blood. So which one is it, Brett? Did he sweat great drops of blood or did he not? I don't know, not sure. But I wouldn't be dogmatic, especially the more I've studied this, the more I, I, I realize maybe this is sort of a foreshadow of what was coming. By the way, hematidosis, if you have that, you probably are gonna die in the next 20 minutes if that happens to you. Jesus would go on much longer after this, kind of interesting. But even if that's true, we know Jesus could have endured and you know sustained through, there's nothing impossible for him. But. But um, as, it, as it is, I, I do kind of wonder, was that just more of a, a simile that was sort of foreshadowing the innocent blood that Jesus would ultimately shed on the cross? So just be careful if you're, if you're in a, you know, a, a biblical uh, discussion and people are arguing, I'd be careful about being dogmatic on Jesus sweat, great drops of blood. I think that's more possibly a simile. Does that make sense? So be careful. These are things we have to be careful. The Bible, by the way, doesn't need to be puffed up with um, more interesting information. Uh, you know, like if something's true, uh, the, the Bible is so full of amazing stories. We don't need to say, no, he sweat great drops of blood because that makes it even more amazing. No, everything Jesus did was amazing, miraculous, and out of this world, incredible. Um, and so I can understand the, the sort of uh, language of, of, you know, St. Luke here as he writes um, this, this story um, as, as simile. Uh, interesting, sweat as it were. Great drops of blood. That's uh, something that kind of lets me know Jesus was uh, getting ready to shed his innocent blood for us minimally. Well, all this to say, we've got this, this um, lonely garden, number one. We've got a costly cup. Now, in verse 47, we have a hypocritical kiss. Uh, let's take a look here in verse 47. And while he yet spake, behold, a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the 12, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the son of man with a kiss? Um, interesting, Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Uh, the kisses of an enemy, that's what Judas is doing here. Now, again, probably going too, uh, too extreme on some stuff, but I, I like to see the connections in the Bible. Do you guys like to see the connections? Um, I think it's kind of fun. Um, does anybody know the Greek word for worship? Somebody said it. Proskuneo is the word. Uh, good, you guys got it. Some of you guys got that. Interesting word to, to worship means to turn towards and kiss in reverence or to pay homage. That's the Greek word for worship. Interesting, uh, when we talk about, I'm just gonna go do some worship, you know, I'm gonna go sing worship songs. Um, the idea is to turn and kiss is kind of the idea, expressing our love toward God in a way that's honoring to him. But as it turns out, uh, you know, there, there's, there's kind of an interesting thing that Judas is here with a hypocritical proskuneo, which is sort of a, a, a kind of an interesting thing. Psalm 23, three. Uh, pardon me, 22, three uh, says, but thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. 
Um, Isaiah 43, 21, this people have I formed uh, for myself. They shall show forth my praise. We were created to give praise and to worship the Lord, to, to proskuneo, turn and kiss, to show affection, to be expressive is the idea. Now, some of you don't like this. Uh, you know, I know who you are. You're the people who love doctrine and theology and Bible study. The reason I know who you are, I'm kind of like you. I love that stuff. Worship uh, is something I've had to kind of train myself to realize how important it is. It doesn't come as naturally for me. Um, some people are just natural worshipers. But um, there's some people that like, even on a Wednesday night, you purposely show up late because you don't want to do the mamby-pamby worship smishy-gushy stuff where people are lifting their hands and singing and swaying back and forth and all this nonsense. I like Bible theology. Or some of you miss it on I had this one guy, he'd always come in right exactly when worship was over. And I, I asked him, you know, man, you, you, you always come kind of late, you know, like you're on a job or something at work. He said, no, I just don't like the music. I was like, oh, interesting. He said, oh, I just like more of the study, the Bible study. Um, uh, Valentine's Day is coming. The men's most favorite holiday. You're all racking your brains, how you're gonna, you know, she's saying, oh no, you don't need to get me anything. That's a lie. Um, just for you young married guys. Um, but how would you feel if you, you know, went to some, deep care and, and you went and got a nice card and some flowers and some chocolates and you wrote the card and you got it all nice and, and you set it out there on Valentine's Day and your wife walks in and she kind of looks at you and looks at the card, opens it, reads it, looks at the chocolate box, rips into it, throws one in her mouth, um, puts the flowers in a vase and she doesn't even turn and look at you and just walks away and, uh, and just sits down and turns on the TV. Um, how would you guys feel? Don't answer that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, um, you see, in some ways, you that are not worshipers of Jesus, you're like that wife. We're the bride of Christ. And Christ wrote us a beautiful love letter. And uh, if you're just all into reading it and then closing it and then walking away, uh, are you kind of missing the point? One of the things that Bible study should sort of... Uh, sort of trigger within you is just the desire to worship the Lord. Sometimes I almost think we should do worship after the Bible study. Um, I'll tell you why we don't, because people get up and leave. They're the weirdos that I was just talking about. The people that are like, oh, so I can leave now. The Bible study's over. We don't need to sing these nonsense songs. That, that's true. We, we do that sometimes on Sunday. Sometimes I'll have the band do one more song or something at the end. That's a guarantee. Oh, we get to get out of the parking lot early. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to like uh, make that normal. We, we we don't want the to encourage that behavior because it's pretty bad. It's actually a, a little bit. Um, you know, if you're not careful, it can be. You can be that cold-hearted bride of Christ. Um, but we're called to worship the Lord. He says, you know, we were created for His, you know, pleasure. That's why we exist. And if you're not doing what you're, you're called to do, um, so this turning and kissing is kind of a big deal. But here we have this hypocritical kiss. Now, the symbolism is interesting. You got it? Okay, kiss, symbolism of worship, got it. But what does that have to do with Judas? Does anybody know what Judas's name means? Yes, praise. It means praise. Judah is the word. The Greek form is Judas. Um, and, uh, and it means praise. Uh, Yehuda is the, the Greek word. Um, now, here's an interesting sort of ugly correlation with praise. We got Judah, the one who is kissing with this fake sort of praise uh, with a kiss. 
um, it starts to remind me of another worship leader. Uh, interesting, who was a worship leader? Satan himself, Lucifer, Ezekiel 28, 13. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Oh, there's the garden I was just talking about. Um, every precious stone that was covering the Sardis, uh, thy, thy covering. So this is talking about Lucifer, how he was adorned as a, an angel of light before he fell. Uh, every precious stone was thy covering, the sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, the gold. Um, by the way, th these are all like the most beautiful gems that you could think of in humanity. They're all listed here, describing Lucifer and all his light and beauty. And then it says, and the workmanship of thy tabrets. The word tabret there is like a timbrel or a tambourine of some sort. Um, and of thy pipes was prepared in thee the day that thou were created. Lucifer was an angel that was beautiful above all the other angels, the Bible tells us. But as it turns out, it seems that most scholars believe that he was probably some kind of a physical instrument, uh, maybe the worship leader in heaven. That's, that's uh, what some people suggest because of this last section that the Lord created him with pipes. We use that sort of metaphorically. If somebody, if some girl can sing, wow, she's got pipes, you know, because she can sing. Well, Lucifer had pipes literally and tambourines in his very being and he was created. Isn't it interesting that, um, uh, that Satan was likely a worship leader? That explains a lot about worship leaders. Um, <laughs> no, just, just kidding. I like old J. Vernon McGee. He said, he said when uh, the demons fell, they fell right into the choir loft. Um, that was, that was Jay Vernon McGee's take on, on the whole thing. Now you say, what does that have to do with a hypocritical kiss? Well, Satan is that one who was supposed to be worshiping the God of heaven, but instead wanted to be worshiped himself. I will be glorified as God is what Satan wanted. Um, Judas kissing Jesus is doing what Satan used to do, uh, sort of a hypocritical uh, worship. Explains how Satan, and by the way, this is interesting, Satan uses music today, I think, to lead people astray. Don't you think? All you gotta do is watch the Grammys, right? Do you think the Grammys are a good indicator? I remember last, this year was bad enough, but do you remember last year? I love the Babylon Bee uh, take on last year. Um, horrified Satan dis uh, distances itself from Grammys. And then there's this whole press release, it cracks me up. In a rare public statement, the Prince of Darkness has distanced himself from the last night's Grammy performance by Sam Smith, which was denounced as cringy and appalling. He said, listen folks, I enjoy demonic sexual perversion just as much as the next guy, but this is just too much, he said, the frustrated father of lies. He said, I'm the God of this world. I appear as an angel of light. It's supposed to be sneaky and subtle. Um, has Hollywood lost its ability to be subtle? What on earth has happened to this town? Um, I, this is a satire for those of you who are like, really, did Satan say that? No, <laughs> satire. Um, but, um, but this is, the, the thing is, be careful about this. I think this idea of, you know, the worship, turning and kissing, Judas is sort of a personification of that problem. Uh, people that will sort of turn and kiss, proskuneo, but do it in a hypocritical way and it leads people astray. Um, the question to ask yourself is, is what I'm listening to or what I'm watching, watching on TV, is it drawing me closer to the Lord or is it pulling me away from the Lord? Um, and the, sometimes the pulling away is very subtle. Uh, and then we realize we're fully off track. Um, I, I'm so thankful I grew up in a home where my mom would always have praise music going, you know, even though I didn't really love the music itself. 
it's funny as a, as a junior higher, you know, the kind of music my mom played, I thought, well, this is kind of old people music, you know. Um, yeah, but, I, but I always kind of felt like it was homey and cozy and it was very worshipful in my house. It's funny now as an older guy, you know, I, I remember the songs I liked back then uh, this much, but those old psalms and hymns my mom used to play at dinner time when we'd be sitting around the dinner table, those are my favorite songs now, uh, stuff that I didn't like when I was in junior high. There, uh, because it was just made our house sort of a place of worship. Uh, and I think that's not where Satan wants to be. Uh, and the, and that, that's the thing, you know. Um, so we know that Satan and Judas are very much tied together. Uh, how tied together were Satan and Judas? Anybody know? The answer is Satan possessed Judas. That's pretty bad. Uh, it's not even possessed by a demon. Uh, it's Luke 22, 3. Uh, we saw this earlier in this chapter. Then entered Satan into Judas. That's what it says. In John 13, 26 through 27, it says, and after Sop, Satan entered into him. So, so Satan is still, you know, using the, this false form of worship, the proskinuo, um, to betray Jesus. Kind of interestingly enough, there's a link to all this stuff that I'm talking about. This is all the layers of the Bible that I'm talking about. This makes it all very interesting, but it also makes for a very long Wednesday night Bible study. So um, we've got this, uh, you know, hypocritical kiss, um, uh, a lonely garden, a costly cup. Number four, we have something we looked at on Sunday, a useless sword, a useless sword we see in verse 49. When they that were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, Shall we smite with the sword? And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far. And he touched his ear and healed him. We saw this on Sunday. We called it an eerie, um, uh, an eerie story. Um, but uh, this, is, this is, by the way, something you should know. This is the last miracle. What was the first miracle Jesus did? Turned water into wine at the wedding of Cana. But here is the last miracle he does while he's on earth, um, if you would. Uh, you might say the resurrection is a pretty good miracle too. Um, but, um, but as far as the normal type miracles that we're talking about, um, Jesus, I like his last healing uh, or miracle is fixing Peter's mistake. Um, I like that because I like Peter make mistakes. I, I've said things I shouldn't have said. I've hurt people's feelings when I didn't mean to, but I did. Um, I'm so thankful the Lord can heal those things. And, and I like that Jesus restores the ear. We didn't really talk about that. Um, but Jesus, um, Jesus does a nice thing for Malchus, pops his ear back on, sticks it on the side of his head and heals him. I, I wanna check out that DVD when I get to heaven. That, that's gonna be something to see. Now, um, notice here as well, um, Jesus could have stopped everything right here if he wanted to. I, I like to bring that in. In fact, let's keep reading here. It says in verse 52, uh, pardon me. Um, yeah, verse 52. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and captains of the temple and the elders which were come to him, be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves. When I was daily with you in the temple, you stretched forth no hands against me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. He's just calling out, you guys, are, you guys are like weasels. You could have arrested me in public view if you were men of honor, 
but because you're liars, deceivers, and you know, wanting to crucify the Son of God, uh, you have to do it at night with some swords and sticks. And, uh, you know, and, and Jesus is saying, you know, Peter, put away your sword. It's not about us fighting these guys. We know Jesus willingly was going. In Matthew 26, do you remember in verse 53, Jesus said, you know, thinkest thou um, that I cannot now pray uh, to my father and he shall presently give more than 12 legions of angels? Like that would have been quite a thing to see too. Those Roman soldiers, you know, a huge group of Romans with their weapons and everything. Jesus could have said, yeah, I'm gonna call for one of my little legions. Does anybody know how much, you know, 12 legions of angels are? Well, in a Roman situation, one legion would be 6,000. And if you had 12 of them, 12 legions, one for each disciple, you'd have 72,000 angels. How many angels did it take to defeat the entire Assyrian army? One big one, honking angel. Um, That's all. Jesus could have called 72,000 angels. I like to remind you because Jesus is doing all this willingly and they all think they're smart. We're coming with our sticks and our swords and our Roman soldiers. You know, boy, Jesus is really gonna get it. Um, But Jesus is just letting them know, no, you know, you guys think this, but you're, you're deluded and you're misguided. So we have the useless sword of Peter that really was misguided. We talked about misusing our sword, the sword of the spirit, um, last Sunday, uh, last weekend. Symbol number five, we now have a crowing rooster. And you know where this is all going, verse 54. It says, then took they him and led him and brought him into the high priest's house. And Peter followed afar off. Now, um, I've, I've talked about how Peter, you know, um, betrayed Jesus in previous gospels and how he followed afar off. And that's always a bad sign for your walk if you're following Jesus from afar. Um, but I feel kind of bad. I've sort of bashed Peter pretty hard on Sunday. So let me, let me take another look at that. Is it okay that Peter followed afar uh, from, a, from a long ways away? I wonder if that's maybe not such a bad thing. Just another uh, maybe side of the coin. You say, how could it be, you know, Jesus, Peter should have stood up for Jesus. No, he tried that in the garden and failed. What was, what were the disciples supposed to do? Um, I, I think, first of all, we got to know that Peter following Jesus afar off is just doing what Jesus predicted, that the sheep would be scattered there in Matthew 26, um, 31 and 32. Jesus said, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. And talking to his disciples, about his disciples. Um, but then he says, after I'm risen again, I will meet you all in Galilee. Like Jesus made it really clear. You guys are gonna scatter. Uh, and then this is where that happens, the garden of Gethsemane. But after I'm risen, then we're all gonna meet each other in Galilee. That's what Jesus told them in Matthew 26, 31 and 32. Um, I, it seems to me that Jesus didn't want them to follow him uh, so that they wouldn't be brought to trial as well. In fact, um, John 18, eight, you can jot that one down in your notes. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he, therefore you seek me. And then he said, let these go their way. Isn't that interesting that Jesus said, all these guys, let them all go. You're, you're seeking after me. Jesus, again, I just want to tell you, he had it all planned out. Peter following afar off is actually, I think, part of Jesus's plan in Peter's defense uh, at this point. Now in verse uh, 55, and when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall and were set down together, Peter sat down among them. But a certain maid beheld him as he sat by the fire and earnestly looked upon him and said, this man was also with him. And he denied him saying, woman, I know him not. 
And after a little while, another saw him and said, thou art also of them. And Peter said, man, I am not. And about the space of one hour after another, confidently affirmed saying, of a truth, this fellow was also with him for he is a Galilean. And Peter said, man, I know not what thou sayest. And immediately while he yet spake, the cock crew. And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how that he had said unto him, Behold, before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Man, this is where your heart breaks for poor Peter. Boldly, I will stand up for you. No, you're gonna deny me three times. No, I won't. Yes, you will. And then he goes and he even tries to pull out the sword and tries to zorro it up and he fails. And he's probably already embarrassed about that. But what was the moment that just broke Peter? You know, it seems like he says this and it takes him three times, but, but then after the third time, you wanna know, if you ask me, perhaps one of the most brutal times of this whole story is where it says there uh, in verse 61, and the Lord, Jesus, turned and looked upon Peter. How did Jesus look at Peter? That's the question. Did he look at him like, or go, user? <laughs> nope, I don't believe that. I, I believe Jesus um, looked at Peter with compassion. And why do I believe that? It's, because, it's the way Jesus handled all sinners. Whenever you see Jesus dealing with someone who fell in sin, and did something evil and wrong. The woman caught in adultery. The woman at the well who has had five husbands, the one she was living with wasn't her husband. Like he was always very gracious. Um, he was brutal to the people that were claiming to be awesome religious people, but, uh, but it was the people that failed and made mistakes. You know, Jesus was very gentle with them. Um, we're told in Galatians, you know, uh, you know, to deal tenderly with those who have been overtaken in a fault. You, which are spiritual, act high and mighty and better than everybody else? No, J Jesus, Jesus is the model here. Paul says, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. In other words, you and I, we can fail just as bad as the next person. So instead of coming and saying, well, I can't believe you did that, come and say, you know, I'm capable of doing the same thing. So I wanna come and lovingly restore you back, pull you up out of the hole. Uh, help you back into good standing with the Lord. This is what you and I are called to do. Christians sometimes are brutal. Uh, we, we sort of take Jesus's action toward the Pharisees and we apply them to people that are caught up in sin. And I'm not sure that's really the same thing. You always see Jesus being gracious and kind, forgiving, merciful. And I, I believe Jesus does that. In fact, we see that evidence from how Jesus handles this later. In Mark chapter 16, we read um, just when we were in the Gospel of Mark, you know, um, remember when the angel came and said, go, and, go your way and tell the disciples and make sure and tell Peter. Remember, make sure and tell Peter. Like, don't let him, you know, be, you know, left out of this good news that Jesus rose from the grave. Um, Luke 24, 34 um, you know, uh, there was a restoring of Peter into fellowship. Um, you know, the Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon Peter. Um, it's like Jesus purposefully appeared to, G to, to Peter. Um, and then Jesus, as you know, you're cooking up the fish on the Sea of Galilee, sh the shore there, gave Peter three times to sort of undo his three denials. Um, when Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Oh, Lord, you know I like you. If you know that whole narrative there, it's kind of interesting. But then Peter is given the charge 
to be uh, the one who feeds the sheep, feeds the flock, um, which is really cool. So Luke here, by the way, kind of cleans up the story a little bit. Um, some of the other gospel writers, um, you know, let us know that Peter starts swearing like a sailor. Why would Peter start swearing like a sailor? The answer, he was one. Uh, he, was, he was a fisherman. I mean, you can say swearing like a fisherman too. Uh, that's just who he was. Jesus, you know, uh, sometimes you can, you know, take the, um, the man out of the fisherman role, but you can't take the fisherman out of the man, if you know what I mean. But um, why do we have this part of the story with the crowing of the rooster? Um, I think there's, there's, there's not several reasons why this is recorded here, but I think maybe one of the main reasons is to show that Jesus was again, just completely in control of everything happening that night. He knew exactly what would happen with Peter, denying him three times, not four times, three times. And then when that would happen, the rooster would crow. Um, uh, you know, uh, in verse 33 and 34, um, you know, um, of this same chapter we read last week when, when he, he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that you knowest me. Jesus nailed it down here. So, um, you know, Peter was crowing about how great he was, if you remember earlier in the chapter. Um, now in, in Matthew's gospel, there's even, um, you know, more adamant about not ever forsaking Jesus than even in Luke's account. So I think Peter goes from this high of thinking he's awesome and he's gonna defend Jesus and they're gonna take the kingdom and all this stuff. And now he goes to the last point where he's denied three times, the rooster crows, Jesus is right, and then Jesus looks at him. And I bet that gracious, loving look that Jesus gave him was the straw that broke the camel's back. That's why he goes out and weeps bitterly. But there's hope. Wouldn't you agree there's hope? You know, when, remember Peter when you fail. Because so many of us think that failure in life is fatal. You know, there's so many of, of, of the people in this world and, and especially the younger generation, it seems that when you seem to fail or when you strike out or when everything goes bad, um, you just think, well, that's just it, uh, it's over. Suicide is uh, on the rise among young people. Um, but, you know, failure is not fatal if you realize that the Lord is merciful and gracious and he's the, the one who forgives us over and over again. And, and he takes our old sins and puts them away. Peter realizes his mistake um, and knows that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. This is the, the Jesus that Peter would serve. So the condemnation idea is not from God. Judas was condemned. There was no real repentance. There was no real hope for him. Peter denied Jesus three times but there was hope because he knew that his sins would be forgiven. Um, was the rooster crowing meant to be a blessing? Um, uh, I don't know, think about it for a second. Was the rooster crow, did Jesus kind of do that? The rooster's gonna go, see, loser. Or was the rooster crow saying, no matter how dark it is for Peter, Jesus still knew everything that was going on. I think, you know, did Peter see Jesus bound up and wondered if he made a mistake in following this Jesus who's now bound up and about to be crucified? But when the rooster crowed, that might just be a reminder, he's in control here. I wonder, I don't know. I don't know if Peter was thinking that, but um, you could look at the rooster crowing as a positive in that way. Number two, it assured Peter that he would be forgiven. Brad, you're reading into the story. How could a rooster crow assure that Peter's gonna be forgiven? Well, if you remember in verse 61, 
it says, uh, and, uh, and uh, verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter and Peter remembered the word of the Lord. What was the word of the Lord? Well, that's verse 32. Go back to verse 32. This is the problem of spreading one chapter over several weeks as you forget what it was said in just a few verses earlier. But in verse 32, but I have prayed for thee <clears throat> that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Do you remember that? We talked about that just last week. Jesus knew that he would fail. But he said, when you're converted, now the word converted, we looked at last week, it doesn't really mean saved. It means repentant. When you repent and change your mind about denying me three times after the rooster crows, then I want you to go and strengthen your brother. In other words, maybe the rooster crow would remind Peter that Jesus is in control, number one, but also that he would be forgiven and he would be able to repent and the Lord would still have use for him. That's kind of a cool thing. And then number three, maybe a rooster crowing uh, means a new day dawning. Um, I knew this growing up with chickens. Uh, I didn't like our rooster. Uh, the alarm clock was like 4.30 a.m. every morning. And it was right outside my window of my bedroom door. And uh, you know, that's where you wanna go and get the hatchet, if you know what I mean. But, um, but I think that that's something tr true about, a, you know, now the rooster is crowing because it's a new day dawning. And that's one of the beauties of being a, a Christian. Um, Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken uh, spirit and, a, and a, a broken and contrite heart thou wilt not despise. And as it turns out, his mercies are new when? Every morning. I love that. That's the God that we serve. So Peter was broken before the Lord but he was still gonna be used mightily by the Lord. Don't, don't forget that. If you've been broken or if you've been feeling like, man, I sinned and I'm uh, past repair, uh, just remember Peter, because that's the same mercy that God will have for you and for me. Okay, so we got number one, the lonely garden. Uh, number two, a costly cup. Number three, a hypocritical kiss. Number four, a useless sword. And number five, a crowing rooster. Um, and now we have number six, we have a glorious throne. Uh, and we begin that section uh, here in, uh, in verse 63. It says, and the men that held Jesus mocked him and smote him. And when they had blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him saying, prophesy, who is it that smote thee? And many other things blasphemously spake they against him. Now pause here for a second. Um, do you ever just kind of wish Jesus would have just done a little trick stuff here? <laughs> like I've got all kinds of great ideas, uh, Jesus. Uh, you know, when they're punching you saying, tell us which one hits you. Um, I'll let you know the one whose brain is gonna explode now in three, two, one. <laughs> There's a little, you know, pink mist in the room. Any other questions? Or, or how about this one? Here's a good one. You know, every time one of the guys punched Jesus, an angel punches the guy in the face. So he's like, like, that'd be great. Come on, Jesus, there's, this is a great moment. Uh, you could have taken advantage of the moment, but why didn't Jesus take advantage of the moment? He, he, you gotta remember, he's taking this because of me. If he were to retaliate um, in this moment, you and I would be doomed. Jesus was taking a punishment, willingly, a penalty, so he did all this willingly. Um, it would have been hard having all the resources at your fingertips to do whatever you wanted to do. T 
tell us which one hit you. Well, you are Bob and you were born in, you know, uh, BC 25. And you, uh, you know, you were just out back doing this and behind the wall over there just the other day. And I saw you and, and, and by the way, your mom thinks you're a nerd and like all the things that, you know, you could say about this guy, like tell him all the details. Jesus could have just totally went off on these guys, but um, he did this willingly. Um, you know, what if, what if he actually did what they were saying? Prophesy who it is that smote thee. Um, he could have done that. Um, and so Jesus endured this because he loves us. Um, he took it for us. What an important thing. Um, you know, by the way, uh, what would Jesus do? Remember the WWJD bracelet? That was such a big hit. And, you know, I, I liked the notion and everything, but, you know, largely I, I kind of found that humanity really doesn't want to go do what Jesus did. That's just the truth of the matter. Jesus was willing to die. And are we willing to die to ourselves, take up our cross and follow him? When I see Jesus going through this torturous sort of event as these guys are punching him in the face, um, am I willing to do that? Am I willing to turn the other cheek? Um, it seems to me that humanity is not really interested in what Jesus would do um, and it, because it goes against everything that we would do. Uh, and that's just the truth of the matter. What do you do, Christian, Athey Creeker, when someone lashes out at you, um, says something evil about you? Do you say something evil back? Um, that's not a very Jesus thing to do, uh, but to turn the other cheek, that's kind of a Jesus thing to do. Easier said than done. Um, some of you are pretty quick at comebacks or get back at them when they're not looking or something like that. We, we love it. We love the story of revenge. It's like a little guy named Daryl. He was a truck driver, drove a big, big rig, pulled into one of these, you know, greasy spoon cafes and sat down at the little, you know, swivel stool counter and was getting his, you know, dinner, um, mashed potatoes and some, some steak and, you know, just kind of your basic meal there. When uh, a bunch of dudes, the Hell's Angels, came riding in with a bunch of Harleys, they all roared in with, and they lined their bikes up out there, and they all kind of swaggered in there, and and uh, and and you know, little Daryl, he was the only one in that diner right up until then, and all these bikers started coming, and well, the head guy, the guy that seemed to be in charge, came as who's this little pencil neck. And uh, Daryl just sat there eating his mashed potatoes and his steak. And, and, and they, they started, you know, um, making fun of him and mocking him. And, uh, and uh, you know, the, the bikers just started, uh, you know, trying to intimidate him. One biker grabbed his iced tea and poured it over Daryl's head. And Daryl just sat there, kept eating his taters. Well, the head guy finally took the mask. I don't think he hears us. And so he took the mashed potatoes and stuffed them in his ears. And uh, the, the bikers were just laughing and laughing and um, Daryl just ignored, kept on eating. Another biker um, said, you know, I, I think he's just, a, he's not even a real man. And they all started snapping their fingers in unison as they were getting ready to do him in. Well, Daryl wiped his mouth with his napkin, mashed potatoes running out of his ears. And he walked out of the diner, got into his truck. Well, the, the biker said, well, he's not very much of a man, is he? And the cafe, you know, lady, you know, Flo, who was the, uh, the, 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 you know, hostess there. She said, yeah, he's not, not much of a man, but he's not much of a driver either. Look what he did. He just ran over all your Harleys with a semi truck. <laughs> now see, we love that. Vengeance. Vengeance is ours. We love movies uh, that, that get back at the bad guy, you know, and, um, and we love that. But the problem is I think we love that too much because we feel like we can do that 
against our enemies. When Jesus said, love your enemies, do good to those that persecute you and despitefully use you. Um, Jesus demonstrated what it's like to be a person who's really turning the other cheek. Um, we love, you know, this retaliation story, but Jesus, he, he's gonna have the ultimate retaliation story. Um, you say, well, see, Jesus is gonna get back to the day of wrath, when God pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejected, yet that's true. But here's the thing, the Bible says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Not you, not vengeance is Brett's or the average athe creaker. We're supposed to leave that to the Lord. Um, and so, you know, there'll be a time when things will be made right. Second Peter 3, 9, you guys know, the Lord is not slack or lazy concerning his promise. Uh, some men count slack, but his long suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but all that should come to repentance. So we need to make sure we're on the right side of all this. And that is to follow Jesus, um, to be willing to turn the other cheek. And this is a, an amazing example right here in Luke 22. Well, um, it goes on in verse 66. And as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into their council saying, art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said unto them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I also ask you, you will not answer me, nor let me go. Hereafter shall the son of man sit at the right hand of the power of God. Then, they all, uh, then, then said they all, art thou then the son of God? And he said unto them, you say that I am. And they said, what need we any further witness? For we ourselves have heard of his own, uh, of, out of his own mouth. Why are they so excited here and so freaked out? The answer is, he, Jesus is saying, yep, I am God. You know, he, he says, uh, you know, if you, you want to answer my questions, you won't let me go. But after this is going to happen, guess where I'm going? I'm going to sit at the right hand of the power of God. Now, this is a, a phrase, an idiom of the Jews that they would recognize. The right hand of the power is, you know, son of my right hand. This is a, a phrase that's used in the Bible. And that's why they ask, then are you the son of God? That's Because that's what Jesus was claiming to be. And, uh, and he said, you, you said it, <laughs> you said it. Um, now this is not him being coy or cute. This is Jesus um, answering, saying, you guys have said it out of your own mouths. And the idea is you're gonna condemn yourselves by your own, by your own words. So um, this is interesting, you know, um, here we have Jesus uh, who's not retaliating. Um, first Peter chapter two, um, you can just jot it down. Uh, I'll just read it real quick. But listen to this in verse 18. It says, servants be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the forward or the mean. For this is thankworthy. Um, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief and suffering wrongfully, for what glory is it? If when you be buffeted for your faults, you take it patiently. But if you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. What Jesus did here is, you know, that's what we're supposed to do. He goes on, for even here too were you called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again or didn't revile back. And when he suffered, he threatened not but committed himself to him that judges righteously. That's what we should do. 
who of his own body, his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. For you were as sheep going astray, but now returned unto the shepherd, the bishop of your souls. Um, you know, this is uh, important for us not to retaliate. This is a good reminder, um, you know, of, of how, what it means to be a Christian, really. Christ suffered for us, and it's a great example for us. You say, Brett, that's kind of a bummer. Um, all you're talking about is how doomed we are. Well, you got to remember, Peter's talking about this, but it's not about, you know, doom and gloom. It's what? Boom and zoom. We get to be in heaven with the Lord. There's, there's a reward to being a Christ follower. Even when you turn the other cheek, it's all going to work out in the end. Um, and that's why we get excited about that. Jesus did all this, back to Luke 22, he did all this willingly for us and how thankful we should be for what Jesus was willingly taking in because he knew it would save us so that we would look forward to being with Christ forever. Well, we're gonna see the kangaroo court, this unjust, goofy trial of Jesus as it continues in chapter 23. We'll pick that up next week. Uh, let's pray together. And so Lord, we're thankful again, this chapter is so sobering and humbling really to think of what, what, what God becoming a man and was willing to take for us, what humanity dished out and how stupid we were and we all have been in our own sins, but Lord, you've been so gracious and kind, merciful and forgiving, and you're able to take our sins away and forgive us and save us. Lord, we're so thankful. Forgive us where we've been those who lash out at those who've wronged us or said things about us. Forgive us where we speak ill and evil against those who've spoken ill and evil of us. Help us to be more like your son, Lord. Um, truly asking what would Jesus do, but not just with a nice little bracelet, but in truth, doing what you did for us is, is the way to go. So help us with that. Lord, bless these, your people who've taken the time tonight to study this chapter and pray that it bring good fruit in our lives. We ask this and pray this in Jesus' name, amen.